My name is James Gleason, and I want to welcome you to the weekend teaching ministry of Sunrise Church here in Hillsboro, Oregon. Now, Sunrise is a church devoted to being a safe place to hear a life-changing message. And our vision is to lead people in a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. And so every weekend, we share a message of hope from God's Word, the Bible. Now, if you'd like to know more about discovering and growing in a relationship with the God who loves you, please take a moment to visit our website at www.isunrise.com. Now, from there, you can learn how to connect with the God who loves you. And you can learn how to grow with others along the journey of life. You can learn to develop a heart to serve the least, the last, and the lost. And finally, you can learn how to lead others to know Jesus Christ on this journey of disciples making disciples. And so now I invite you to follow along with our weekend message as you discover the heartbeat of God. I had an interesting encounter a number of years ago at a pastor's prayer retreat. Been to a lot of pastor's prayer retreats at the coast and the mountains and such. This one in particular was my first time with this group. My buddies and I, a couple staff members, we had gone to the retreat. We were hanging out together. We had done an early morning hike. And uh, we were in our shorts and t-shirts and gone out. It was kind of warm. And uh, we came back in, and, you know, just because of the nature of everything, we had baseball caps on. We came in. We were a little late, so we got on the edge, the outside of the prayer circle. And as we're praying, uh, you know, we hadn't actually said anything yet. People are praying. Uh, I, I, just, I just noticed this presence over my shoulder. Some guy tapped me on the shoulder, and he stuck a Bible in my face. And this old geezer with a bony finger pointed to 1 Corinthians 4, which said that if a man prays or prophesies with his head covers, it's a disgrace to his head. And so I pointed to the next verse that said, if a woman prays or prophesies without a head covering, it's a disgrace to her head. And I reached over, looked at my shoulder. I said, so do your women cover their heads? And that was it. I was mad. Now, I was mad because this guy chose religion over a relationship. Um, The reality was he could have asked. He could have said, hey, um, I just don't like the fact you're wearing a baseball cap. And I would have said, oh, man, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to offend you. Glad to take it off. But that wasn't the approach. The approach was all about a religious rule. Now, I had gone to Bible college. I had gone to seminary. I knew the passage. I understood what Paul was talking about. He's writing to the Corinthians. If you know about Corinth, it's a very, very spiritual area. A lot of cult practices, temples everywhere. A very sexually promiscuous community. You would go to the cult practice temple, whatever it might be. Diana, Athena, all those, Apollo, and you would go as part of worship, have sex with the temple prostitute. The young ladies who were there were either bought into that or sold themselves into that. They had their heads shaved. And when those young ladies came to faith in Jesus Christ and came out of that, when they went to church, it was an offense for these ladies to show up with their heads still shaved because it reminded people of where they came from. I get the fact that we drop ourselves into cultures all around the world, and it's up to us to learn the culture and learn to respect the culture. There's no question about that. But what I didn't like that morning was the fact that the guy didn't choose to offer up any relational invitation at all. It was just stick the Bible in your face and kind of prove the point with God's word which I knew he was wrong. And so my internal response was one of those thoughts in my head of the three stooges. I just want to poke the guy in the eyes. That's my flesh, right? And I thought, I just got mad. Because it could have been different. It could have been a, 
hey, can we sit down and have a conversation? Absolutely. See, I didn't grow up in that culture where wearing a baseball cap while you were praying was wrong. Because in a lot of places around the world, if you don't cover your head when you pray as a man, you're dishonoring God. If you go to Israel, you go to the Western Wall, you have to have a head covering on, a cap, some kind of a hat, or a little kippah that you cover, because in their law, you have to cover your head. Same thing in Islam. So different cultures have different rules and regulations, and I get that, and I totally respect those things. But what happens if you choose religion over relationship? And particularly in the area of the Sabbath, what happens? I think you become a group of people who create rules and laws that at some point might have made sense, but no longer have any connection to reality, and you've disconnected yourself from the very intent of the rule or the law. Let me show you kind of how this fleshes out. In the Old Testament, in which we looked at our first week on the Sabbath as rest, we saw how God created everything in six days, and on the seventh day he ceased. He rested and declared that as a day of resting and a day that was holy. So the idea of, of resting is just not working. So whatever's worked, just don't do that. And the idea of holy is it's set apart, it's sacred, it's a special day, right? And so that's what we've been looking at, God's Sabbath as rest. It's a gift to enjoy. Last week we looked at it as uh, an opportunity to rely upon him. Or a couple weeks ago, rely on him when the man in the wilderness came up. That when we say no to working seven days a week, when we actually carve out time selfishly, as it might appear to others, to say no to activities so that we can rest, you know, we have to learn to trust God for the money, for the relationships. And then last week, we looked at the Sabbath as resistance. That when we say no, we begin to push back on the consumeristic culture of our world, which is all about buying and selling and producing and consuming and all those things. What does it look like to be a people that are different, that are marked as different? The Jewish people were known by their distinctions, and and the biggest one was Sabbath. And as they would go into varying areas and communities and cultures around the world, the fact that a group of people stopped for 24 hours, that was a pretty major thing, and it was countercultural. So what would that look like for you and for me if we did something like that? But today I want to talk about the Sabbath as relationship, not religion, because it's too easy for you and for me to get our habits in place of Sabbath, which are good, and then slowly over time twist those into not just personal preferences, but religious requirements, because that's what happened in the past. If you study the text, you know that God just says, don't work. And the Old Testament doesn't have a lot of detail about that. It's got some prohibitions here or there. And so over time, the people wanted to know, what did it mean when God said, don't work, to declare the day is holy? And so over the years, over the decades, over the centuries, over the millennia, the religious leaders, the rabbis, the authorities, they said, well, let me explain it to you. Let me go into detail. And now this is um, a couple of the Jewish texts from in and around the time of Jesus that would kind of explain where the culture was at the time of Jesus and why he got into so much trouble. And Jesus was definitely in trouble a lot on this one. This is... uh, A great text that kind of has a good principle in it for you and for me. Moses received Torah. This is the law. The first five books, specifically the teachings of God, from Sinai, that mountain, and handed it to Joshua and Joshua to the elders and the elders to the prophets. And the prophets handed it to the men of the great assembly, uh, the, the leaders of the nation of Israel. They said three things. Be deliberate in judgment, raise many disciples, and make a hedge around the Torah. 
or a fence. And so uh, that's a good idea. And, and the reason they wanted to create a hedge around God's teaching was so you didn't violate it. So, for example, if over here this is a law, you know, do not murder, that's a good law. It's part of the commands. Uh, but what if you get close? So why don't we just create a little bit of a barrier there, a guardrail? I have guardrails in my life, not necessarily about murder, uh, okay? Um, But I have guardrails in my life. And so I want to bump against the guardrail so I don't go off the cliff, right? Or over here, if you have, you know, a guardrail about sexual areas, it's safe because then it, you know, helps you not fall off the edge. So creating a hedge or a fence around the Torah, God's teaching, it's not a bad thing. Except, of course, if all of a sudden your hedge or your fence becomes God's law. And your personal preference or your personal guardrail or your fence or your hedge now all of a sudden becomes God's hedge. And, and you so restrict your ability to move that you foster that amongst God's people. And no one remembers even the intent of that one. The law... Not the written law of God, but the oral teachings of God's people piled upon pile of laws to the point where the oral law, those traditional teachings of the elders, the rabbis, the experts in the law, became more important than God's written law. Now, again, let's not be so negative on the Jewish people. We all do that. This is not a Jewish issue. This is a a mankind issue. This is a human heart issue. That we want to create rules, and I think on a good day to save ourselves, but on a bad day to impose upon others. And so if you read the story and you go on in in the teachings in the Mishnah, it was described this way, like a mountain hanging by a hair. The scriptures say little, but the rules are many. So as not to break the actual command of God, let's create some extra commands to keep us safe. Not a bad idea unless you forget what the real command is. So when it comes to Sabbath, there wasn't, again, a whole lot explained in the Old Testament about detail. So the leaders kept wanting to explain it to the people. And so they created a list of 39 Sabbath laws. And they were in various areas. Some of the areas related to working in your field. Most of us don't have that area, okay? All right. Uh, But it was very agricultural. Working in your field. Making food. What could you do to make food and what could you not do? Because one activity of making food is not violating the Sabbath, but something else is. Uh, Washing clothes, to which some of us would say, I wish all of it were violating the Sabbath and I'd be free, right? But washing in some way is okay. Washing in another way is not. Making your bed, to which all of us would go... That would be nice if we didn't have to make our bed one day a week. Sewing your clothes. What amount of sewing would constitute work and what amount of sewing would not constitute work? What could you do on Sabbath and what could you not do? Drawing water. Building a fire. That's an important one. Building a fire. Traveling or tying knots. There were teachings from rabbis that said, this kind of knot you can tie on the Sabbath. But this kind of knot over here... This is working, and you can't tie this. And it related to the number of twists and turns of the rope. This many twists and turns, not work. But all of a sudden, you get over here. That's too many twists and turns, and now you're violating the day of ceasing that God has set apart as holy. Now, practically speaking, this is how it worked. This is how it actually fleshed itself out. Did you know 
that you could clean the crumbs off of your table after a meal as long as the amount of crumbs did not exceed the size of an olive. Okay? Now, I don't know how you decide that in advance, you know what I mean? Because you don't want to start sweeping things up and, olive, we're done. Okay. You know, but at some point somebody said, well, sweeping crumbs is probably good to clean your table, you know, because cleanliness is next to godliness or something like that. But, but, you know, you left too many crumbs and now doing that would be working. Isn't that minuscule? Isn't that kind of silly? Well, it's detail. You got to have detail, right? You know you're not allowed to light a fire on the Sabbath, but does that mean, do you know this, that you cannot drive a car? Because if you drive a car, you're not only turning a key on, which is an electrical spark potentially, uh, you actually are lighting up fire inside your cylinder with the spark plug and the gas and all that combustion. And you can't light a fire. That's work. And you can't drive a car. And so in orthodox areas, there's no driving on the Sabbath, which, you know, explains a lot why Jewish people, orthodox Jews, they walk to synagogue which is great. It's a communal thing. But then if it's cold and snowy and rainy, it's a difficult thing. But it doesn't matter because you can't drive a car. I've had many opportunities to go to Israel and to uh, be in and around the old city. And several times, it's just so happened that we've been there on Shabbat, on Sabbath, on Friday and Saturday. And so by Friday night when the sun goes down to Saturday before the sun goes down again, you cannot drive a car. And if you get caught driving a car on Shabbat, it's a dangerous thing, potentially. This last time my family and I, we had a car and we drove around and, and it, you know, the maps just said, go this area. And as I'm going in this area, I'm like, oh, this is not good. I see how people are dressed. And so let's see how this works. And so people, you know, part the way. They don't sometimes. They just want to block you. And uh, this one, the kids were yelling and screaming at the car. Uh, a time or two ago, kids were throwing rocks at our vehicle, at our little uh, cheroot, the van we came in on. Because... Driving a car is work or creating fire. Now, you and I would go, what's the big deal, right? And can they drive a Tesla? That's the question. (laughs) I researched that this week, and most of the rabbis say no because there's still spark going on somewhere, okay? Now, if it's some kind of hoverboard, potentially, I don't really know. Well, did you know that there are rules that relate to the amount of travel you can make? And based upon ancient rabbinical sources, you could only travel what would be the equivalent of a half a mile. As long as you travel within a half a mile of your home or your domicile, is the word usage, you're safe, you're not working. But did you know that if you travel a half a mile and you drop some personal possessions, some food, some clothing, something from your house and you sit it there, that you therefore have extended your domicile, your home, to where you can now walk another half of a mile. And you could keep doing that until neighbors get angry because now you're in their domicile, okay? But the practicality of this is that in Manhattan today, it is possible to walk the entire length of Manhattan all around, even though it's far more than a half a mile. Do you know why? Because there are wires connecting every building and every block in Manhattan. Fishing line. And as long as the fishing line is up, it's considered one large domicile, which would be a very, very expensive rent if you rented all of Manhattan, right? Now, you can go on to Google Maps, as I did this last week, and you can see all of those wires. And this is the coolest part about all of it. There is a live Twitter feed constantly updated by the rabbis that let you know if any of the fishing line is broken and when they will get that fixed by the Sabbath so you can therefore extend your domicile to whatever block you want to walk on. 
all right? Best use of Twitter I've ever seen, all right? Now, I have to ask, though, is that really what God intended? No. That's what we do to laws. That's how we take God's commands and turn them into religious obligations. And you know, when I was there that day and that guy was sticking his Bible in my face and I was angry, I thought, man, I just, just wish I had more Jesus in me. He would never have gotten mad at religious people that stuck the Bible in his face, <laughs> except he did a lot. Jesus got angry when people used religion as a covering to hide from compassion. Jesus had a heart for people, especially those that were hurting and broken, the least, the last, and the lost, people that were helpless and harassed. And religious people had more concern for their religious rules than for the broken. What I'd like to do is I'd like to take you to a text in Mark where Jesus says this in one of the encounters, and it's kind of just setting everything up, It's in Mark chapter 27. It says, The Sabbath was made to meet the needs of the people and not people to meet the requirements of the Sabbath. So the Son of Man himself is Lord even over the Sabbath. In one of the encounters, Jesus walked in. He was so heartbroken that they had gotten it all upside down, that he declared that I'm greater than this. But notice what he said in advance. He said, We're not the slaves to the rule. The rule is a servant of our lives and hearts. The rule is something that's been given as a gift. It's not a burden. And so as we think about Sabbath, I know we're all inclined to create some good habits and some good practices, and I applaud that. But let's not take those habits and practices and think of ourselves as somehow morally, religiously superior to anyone else, or worse, let's not then superimpose that on others as if by not obeying that you're not obeying God Jesus had several struggles with the religious people and in particular the Sabbath was a key issue where he seemed to break the Sabbath laws over and over and over again I want to make this statement Jesus was an observant Jew and he never broke God's law he wrote God's law right but he seemed to go out of his way to break the religious rules of the people, the oral law, the teachings that were piled upon teaching. And I want to show you six Sabbath stories, say that a couple times quickly, six Sabbath stories of Jesus that illustrate how it's easy to hide behind religion and lose compassion and mercy and the heart of God. And then we'll jump to some, I think, some really good practical applications for the Sabbath as a relationship. Well, these six stories, I'm sure you're all familiar with them, and I don't have all the text there. I've got the address for it. But the first one is the Sabbath and harvesting grain, Matthew 12, 1 to 8. Jesus is walking with his disciples. They're walking through a grain field. The disciples are hungry, so what do they do? They reach out, grab some of the grain, and they, wait for it, rub it between their hands, which the rabbi said was work. That's not what God said. That's what they said. Out of nowhere. All I can think of is when I was a kid, I used to watch Hee Haw and people would hop out of the cornfield. You know what I mean? It's like these religious people hop out of whatever hiding place they were in. They're like, gotcha. You're making work. What do you mean? You're harvesting grain. No, we're just rubbing some grain together to eat it because we're hungry. My disciples are hungry. 
And Jesus got into an argument with them because they said, you're breaking God's law. He was not, and they were not breaking God's law. The reality is this. As he said, the Sabbath is for our benefit. We're not the slaves to that. The Sabbath and the deformed hand. The man who had the deformed hand in Matthew 9, which follows immediately after this passage, Jesus goes into synagogue, and he goes there, and he's a part of it. Usually Jesus shows up, and he teaches because he's a traveling teacher, and he would teach, and they would ask him questions, and he would expound on the text, and great. Jesus is in the midst of these people, and a guy shows up with a deformed hand. Now, why is the man there? Has he been there every week? We don't really know, but he shows up and Jesus shows up. And what does Jesus do? He looks upon this man with compassion because this man has a violation of the body. Anybody with any kind of physical deformity could not go to the temple and present themselves before God. And so this man is an outcast. He's excluded from the community of faith. And here is this man with a deformed hand. And in the midst of it, Jesus looks over and sees him. And his heart goes immediately to his need. And so he heals the man. But you know what the religious leaders do? They blow their cork. They snap. They come unglued. Whatever metaphor you want to come up with, they are outraged. Because Jesus has healed on the Sabbath. And how dare you do something like that? See, they're more concerned about their religious rules than the fact that Jesus just saved somebody from some incredible, difficult aspects of his life. So Jesus goes on and says, you know what? You create the rules, but you miss the heart. He shames them in public. He's angry in his heart, it says, because of their response. And so they accuse him of blasphemy. They accuse him of violating God's rules. And you know what they do? Here's an interesting, ironic twist of fate. They walk out on the Sabbath, on the holy day, the day that they have accused Jesus of breaking the Sabbath, and they walk out and they begin to plot Jesus' murder, which, unless I'm wrong, is one of the Ten Commandments, right? Well, then you take a look at the Sabbath and the paralyzed woman. Here's a woman who's been bent over for 18 years. 18 years she's had this deformity in her back. We don't know any details at all. But Jesus shows up and he's there in the midst of them in the synagogue and he's teaching. And so he, with compassion, heals her. The religious leader objects. And you know Jesus' response to him? And not in a demeaning, defaming way. He looks at the man and he basically goes down this line as he does a couple times. He says, so if your animal is hurt, Will you not care for it on the Sabbath? And how much more valuable is this lady than one of your animals? Obviously, not much more valuable because they had no compassion for her. Then the Sabbath and the sick man in Luke 14, Jesus is having dinner with the leading Pharisees, not in a synagogue, but it's on the Sabbath. And there's a man who comes in with some translations say dropsy. It's an abnormal swelling of the body with fluids. Very, very painful. So his body is swollen up and it's hard to get around. He's in constant pain. And he asks the same question. If I heal this man, is it not a good thing to do on the Sabbath? They don't have an answer. And so he heals him. And they're outraged. And what Jesus is trying to point out is faithfulness to God's Sabbath requires us to do good and not withhold good for the sake of our religious rules. 
Then the Sabbath and the paralyzed man. John chapter 5. I love this one. This man is similar to a lot of people in Jesus' day. Paralyzed. There's some kind of illness. We don't know exactly how he got it. But 38 years this man has been crippled. 38 years. And all he can do is beg. Well, in this encounter, Jesus walks over and he sees the man lying on his mat. He's by the pools of Bethesda. There's a great area in uh, an area just north of the Temple Mount, the Church of St. Anne that kind of celebrates this. And Jesus goes over and he heals that man. And he tells him, so pick up your mat and go home. Just kind of cool because he's never picked up his mat in 38 years. In fact, people have picked him up on his mat and carried it home. And now the guy jumps up and he grabs his mat and he scoots home and you can just imagine him praising God. And you know who jumps out? A a Sabbath enforcer. He says, why are you carrying your mat on the Sabbath? You're breaking the rules by working. It's like, what, what are you talking about? For 38 years, I couldn't carry anything. I'm really happy to do this, right? It's my little addition to the text there. Not authorized. Um, They go, what happened? Jesus healed me. And they are angry at Jesus. And once again, they go to plot his demise. Why? Because he healed a man on the Sabbath. What's better? To heal someone who's been broken and hurting and paralyzed and lying on a mat, hoping and praying that God would heal him. And all of a sudden, he shows up and he's leaping and he just can't believe it. He carries his mat home. What's better, that or obeying man-made rules? Well, in the religious leader's eyes, obeying the rules is far more important. And enforcing that on others is far more important. That's part of the problem of religion, is that it twists our heart into thinking that we are superior and we are the ones that make the rules. Well, my favorite one is the last one, the sixth story. It's in John chapter 9. And it's not just my favorite story of Jesus healing someone and getting in trouble. I like Jesus getting in trouble. Uh, You see that a lot. But it's my favorite story of Jesus. In John 9, Jesus heals a man who was born blind. This guy has been blind for decades. 40 years he's been blind. And so as Jesus is going on, along, the guy is begging, and Jesus goes up, and instead of giving him money, he spits in the dirt, makes some mud, and sticks it in his eye. Looks a little like the Three Stooges, right? Okay, well, what's going on? He says to the guy, go, go wash your eyes out in the pool of Siloam. It's like, well, thank you very much, okay? He makes his way down to the pool of Siloam. He washes his eyes out, and he can see. The guy's ecstatic. He's telling everyone. Well, immediately, the religious people show up. It's like, what's going on? What happened? Well, I don't know. Well, tell me what happened. All I know is I was blind, and now I see. He's like, well, how did it happen? I don't know. The guy came up. I heard him spit. All of a sudden, my eyes are wet. It's kind of stinky. It's like, I don't know what's going on. And they told me to go wash. And I go wash and I can see. Well, who did it? I don't know. This guy, I was blind. I don't know who it was. But I can tell you this, I can see. This is my favorite story. It's a whole chapter. Because it's this back and forth comedic story of this guy just saying, I only have one story. I was blind. Oh, new story. I can see. That's it. The religious leaders only have one story. You're sinful, and the guy who did this is sinful. And there's one encounter where it gets to this point where they go to his parents. It's like, the guy's 40, okay? Now, maybe he's been living in the basement, but he's 40, all right? So they go to the parents, tell me, is this the son that was born blind? And they already knew that anybody that sided with Jesus would be kicked out of the synagogue. Like, I don't know. He's old enough. Ask him. You know? So they go again. Tell us what happened. What do you mean? I've already told you. This guy did it. Well, who is it? I don't know. It's Jesus. And they go, well, we know he's a sinner. We'll go, really? That's interesting. 
He's a sinner. Has anybody ever done this? This has never happened in our history. What, do you want to become his disciples too? Oh, man, they explode. It's, it's a great story. Just read John 9. Perfect story. Finally, Jesus comes up, introduces himself, introduces him as the Messiah, himself as the Messiah. And this guy sees Jesus. But see, each of those six stories illustrate what can happen in your heart and my heart. If we run to religion, meaning our own rules, and become legalistic. You know, legalism is just when you have more rules than the next person, right? And we're all legalistic to some degree in our hearts. We all come up with our way of doing things, which is fine. The way you read the Bible, the Bible translation you read, the style of music you listen to. I mean, I've been through a lot of that. Remember when I came to Christ at 15 years old and the little Baptist church that I went to, everybody dressed up every Sunday. I kid you not. I went out and I bought, I had several three-piece suits and ties to go to church. Now, Pastor Taylor is probably taking notes now, and that's going to be the new requirement for youth group attire. A three-piece suit and tie. I had several of them in my closet. Why? Because that was the righteous, holy standard of our church. I didn't, I didn't like them. I don't think ties are very comfortable. Three-piece suit? I'll take a jacket every once in a while, right? But that didn't matter because I needed to fit in, right? And our church decided that. We sang hymns, which are great. I love hymns. We just sang one. But, you know, we were the holy, holy people who sang hymns because we weren't like those, you know, liberal churches that took out the third verse of the hymn. We sang all four stanzas, right? And we would never go, let's just sing one, two, and four. It's like we'd kick you out of the church. It's like that's God's holy hymn, right? Well, we thought or we acted or we pretended or we believed that our standard was the standard. And it it was about our translation of the Bible. It was about our style of music. And we can easily get into that, even at sunrise. I I was looking at you guys coming in. A lot of you guys, you're wearing shorts and T-shirts. You know, good for you. The ladies have dressed up. Thank you, ladies, okay, for setting the standard once again. Okay, but it's, it's about modesty, right? There you go. I go to some situations when I'm with the city or different places. I wear a coat and tie. Why? Because that's the standard. If I go to meet with our banker, I wear a jacket. I wear a coat. Why? Because that's what they wear at the bank, right? But if I go to the rescue mission, you know what? I just wear jeans and a T-shirt because that's what people on the street wear. It's not about trying to appear more holy than someone else. It's to have a heart of compassion for people and to actually show them holiness by your life. A couple questions here. How could these leaders choose religion over relationship? That's what that guy did who stuck the Bible in my face that day. He chose religion over relationship. It could have been so different for these Pharisees and teachers of law. But it wasn't different because they cared more about their religion than their relationship. How could they create a theological excuse for a cold heart? When a woman has been bent over for 18 years, does that not break your heart? When a man has been paralyzed for 38 years, does that not cause you to weep? When a man has been blind for 40 years, when there's a deformed hand, when people are hungry, I mean, you look at it. Is is there not a better way to live than just to create a rule that excludes people from you? Or worse, to create an opportunity for you to shut down people's needs that are right in front of you and to declare with a holy voice that this is God's Sabbath, I can't help you? See, Jesus broke all that. And I think we should too. And if we're not careful... In our Sabbath practices, we might get close to that. 
So what I'd like to do in the next few minutes is I'd like to talk about the Sabbath as relationship. And I want to talk about it in relationship to some opportunities. And I, I've got a quote from a book I read a couple years ago about Sabbath. Uh, Lynn Babb, Sabbath Keeping. The Sabbath nurtures relationships. It's a really good book. The fast pace of our world encourages us to forget that relationships take time. Friendship is a slow art, whether it's with God's family, uh, with God, family members, or other people. The Sabbath can give us precious and much-needed time to grow in friendship, to have leisurely conversations that help us go deeper with the people we love and with God. Loving and being loved bring grace into our lives, and that's how Jesus responded. I want to use the three categories that she mentioned here about God, about family, and other people, and I want to talk about it as relationships. So in this slide, I've just got some thoughts for you, and um, when you think about the Sabbath as a relationship— I would hope that you'd develop some practices with your family. It could be uh, maybe you've got some friends, you're not married yet, maybe you're married, maybe you've got children. I don't really know. You've got grandkids, your family, your extended family. And if you're, if you're single and you're here and you've got no one around you, you've got a church family, okay? So what would be some practices you could develop about family, about your friendships, about some habits, some things you do to create holy space with your friendships, giving time for those things to grow, or with your faith in God? I pulled our church staff. I sent an email out this week. I said, would you share with me some of your habits, some of the things that you have now begun to institute in your life now that you really, truly get a Sabbath? For 19 years, we've had a Saturday night service. And this summer, we broke that and we moved it to Sunday night. And we've done that to test to see if we could actually get Sabbath. And we did. And we have. And it's actually really amazing. It's a little odd. You know, it's a little weird. But it's beautiful. In fact, we've decided as a staff, we're going to continue that practice, that we will not have Saturday night church, that we will have it on Sunday night so that we can have a true Sabbath day. And so they sent me emails with some ideas, and I want to read them to you. And just random thoughts, you're not going to be able to tie them down to any one person. On our Sabbath, we set no alarms, have brunch after a slow morning of drinking coffee, reading my Bible in conversation. Together, we'll ride motorcycles, bicycles, or go for a walk in the afternoon. We will end up at a restaurant for dinner and enjoy time with others. Sounds like food is a key part of this person's life, right? Good Portland person. Here's one. We generally begin our Sabbath on Friday evening after work and spend the entire time together until Sunday morning. Our Sabbath generally consists of doing things together that we both enjoy, like working around the house, going to the coast, visiting the kids or the grandkids, going to the Saturday events, working at a home project together. Sabbath for us is our together day. Um, As our family, and I've shared this before, I'll share it again next week, we take the beginning as a Friday night, Friday night, it's family night. One of the habits we just instituted uh, were candles and we showed our boys uh, the Liam Neeson Les Miserables, which is the best version. Um, he doesn't sing, which is so awesome. And, um, and so in that, you know, there's the very poignant picture of God's grace. Where at the beginning, he's a thief, and he's been in prison 19 years, and Jean Valjean ends up stealing the silver from the Monsignor's house. And as he's caught and brought back in by the gendarmes, he is now caught dead to rights. And it was in that moment that the man who had all the power hands in the candlesticks chides him for not taking those two. And he says, with these candlesticks, I bought your soul. You are now a free man. 
and it changes the course of his life. So I bought some inexpensive silver-type candlesticks, and we've got candles. And so our question now every Friday night as we light the candles is, so what act of grace has God shown to you this week? Or what act of grace are you showing to someone else? And reminiscent of those beautiful pictures from that movie. Here's one. For Sabbath, I move at a slower pace. No alarm. Lingering over my Bible, my journal, and my coffee. So far, food, coffee, and no alarms is a constant theme here. I love that. My wife and I go for a walk or run. We do some yard work, and I'll read something fun. I enjoy going mountain biking or hiking, which brings me out of the city into the forest, which draws my attention away from man-made things to God-made things. Here's one. Because I'm an introvert, working at sunrise is constantly so, in this constantly social atmosphere wipes me out. So once a week, I become a social hermit. I like this. This is great. This is a young guy. I usually stay home, read, pray, try to stay away from any type of media like music, podcasts, videos, TV. When I get a chance, I like to meet with a friend I haven't seen in a while, one-on-one, and get some coffee. I love engaging people one-on-one, and that's such an important element of my Sabbath. Here's one. At our house, we listen to the Bible and worship together. We'll take naps with no alarms, cook a meal together, and not talk about work. Here's one. We generally turn off the alarm, sleep until we wake. I can see a theme here. This is great. We work out and have a small bite of breakfast. My quiet time with God is extended longer than normal, allowing more time to listen to music as I enter into scripture and other spiritual formation readings. We avoid going out to purchase things, but do enjoy an early dinner date where we will talk about our schedules. And then the last one, with my work schedule, it's tough for me to take a Sabbath. I like this because this person is talking about reality. To go from zero to 60 with Sabbath is difficult. I don't often have a whole day that I can devote to it. However, I found that any time that I can commit to and allow myself to take is restorative and rejuvenating. Just the act of making myself take a break, be still, and relax is so helpful. Whether it's focused for one hour or one day. Now, I'm sure there are stories that you could tell, and I would love to hear your stories. I would love, over the next couple of weeks, drop in some ideas for our church family, our community. And so, you know my email address, jamesg at isunrise.com, and just say, here's a Sabbath practice. Here's something, maybe it's from your family, maybe it's from growing up, maybe it's something you're just working on, maybe it's an idea you thought of, but something that would be restorative to your life. Something that would show compassion to others. Maybe you've struggled with the religious component and you wrestle with this idea of Sabbath because in your history, in your background, Sabbath is nothing more than one big word and that's the word no. And you've been deprived and denied because other people have imposed their values upon you. Well, share that. I would love to hear that. We would love as a community to learn about that. I believe though, but when we slow down and begin to practice God's Sabbath rest, we not only begin to enjoy the Sabbath rest, we learn to anticipate the Sabbath rest. And we get to the point where we look forward to just ceasing and declaring the time is holy and watching God show up. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your words about the Sabbath and the encounters Jesus had because they're constant reminders of the inclination of our heart to take our personal or our cultural viewpoint and make it a religious issue. Keep that far from our hearts. May we be more focused on compassion and mercy and kindness than rules. Your rules are good for us. Your laws are life. 
But when we create rules and laws, they stifle and they smother life. God, I pray that you would give us the opportunity, even this week, to just sit down and consider the Sabbath as relationship. Give us an insight into how we can take a further step toward learning to rest and push back against the incredible pressure of constant connectivity, constant drive, constant noise in our head and our heart that doesn't shut down. And may we learn to enjoy you, the God who has saved us, we pray in your name. Amen.